when I when I was uh, preparing the class, and then this morning I had a few insights. I said, you know what? I feel like I do this maybe once a month. I say, okay, I want to rename the, the, the class, the post facto. Uh, and I want to rename it as follows. Um, three types of atheists. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because... What I've discovered, you know, in preparing for this for this talk, is that this the idea of rejecting God can actually have can be good, which sounds bizarre. How, how could it be that to reject God could be a good thing? And how could it be? You know, if you reject God, fantastic. That's oh, not fantastic, but that's you know that's a, what you chose. Fine. How could that be good? And how could there be multiple layers? And what I discovered is that you know there's this idea that we say that. Everything has to have some sort of redeeming quality. The Almighty puts in the world all these kinds of activities and, and, and attitudes and philosophies that no matter, no, you, no matter how terrible it, it, it may be, there's going to be some sort of opportunity for using that for a mitzvah. I'll give you an example. We know that revenge, taking revenge, is one of the worst things someone could do. Now, the Talmud tells us someone who takes revenge is the guy who's using the sickle to cut his, to harvest his wheat, and by mistake, his left arm gets lopped off by his sickle. With these really sharp swords, and then cut off, he covers up. Terrible, right? So what does the severed arm do? It's so mad, it's so upset, it picks up the, the, the sickle and lops off the right arm in retribution. Terrible, right? We're, we're one nation, we're one people, we're one species. We have to treat each other with dignity, and uh, we don't, you know, we don't, we don't do revenge. But that's one Talmud. Other Talmud says, every Torah scholar who doesn't avenge, doesn't take vengeance like a snake, is not a Torah scholar. So those things obviously sound like they're in opposition, correct? So which one is it? The answer is it depends what. You know, if someone is making an assault against morality, against goodness, right? Then Anger is a good thing. Then revenge is a good thing. And I found the place where even atheism is a good thing. You know where that is? When you see someone else who has needs, someone else is lacking something, whatever it may be. So what do you say? Well, listen, who put them in that situation, right? Was it God? Someone's sick, right? Or someone uh, is less fortunate in whatever uh, arena of life. So what do we say as believers? We say, well, who gave them that curveball? It was God, right? It's a good thing. So ironically, when someone else is doing bad and we invoke our spiritual lenses, well, what happened? That's evil. Because what I say, well, the Almighty is there. Don't worry about it. He'll take care of you. And my kind of, my, my spiritual idealism when imposed on someone else is evil. There's a time to say, I, I'm not, I'm, God's not the picture. It's kind of the kosher atheists. When you see someone else who has a need, you don't say, oh, I'll let God take care of him. Well, shouldn't God's work be our own? Isn't that that, I understand. I understand, but yes, yeah, so so I would agree it's not atheism. I agree that. But the, the, the notion that we can kind of take our spiritual-centric attitude and impose that on someone else and say they ought to live with the same you know, the same ideals, the same perspective, that ironically could be, could be evil. Uh, and, you know, I thought it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting, you know, that 
I, I give you guys some examples here, you know. Um, in, in, in Toronto, Toronto is a very interesting city from the Jewish perspective, you know, for the, the Jewish Torontonians, uh, because there's a lot of enormously wealthy and very generous Jews in Toronto. It's one of, you know, per capita, maybe it's the most generous Jewish city. And if you go visit there, my wife's from Toronto, every single day there's 30 people landing from Israel to raise funds for something. Raise funds for their family, raise funds for their institution, raise funds for whatever. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that, you know, that, that's the way stuff happens, right? You can't run a Jewish organization or a charitable organization unless you raise money. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. I've heard this idea of like, Toronto should really worry about its own. Toronto should really be concerned about the well-being of their own institutions. And we shouldn't be giving so much money to other, you know, to outside the city. This big, I heard it so many times. And to me, this was always like striking. It's like, you know, what, what are we as a nation if not a people that care of each, about each other? You know, that one of the characteristics that marks a Jew is, is, the, is compassion, is benevolence. You see someone who's less fortunate than you, and you lord over them and say, well, we shouldn't be giving to people outside of our city, only people locally, and you kind of mask it with, like, our institutions need help as well. The people that say that are the ones who don't even give to their institutions. You know, there was a few emails going around. In our neighborhood, we also get some visitors. You know, we get people coming to our neighborhood in, in, um, uh, in you know, the Jewish neighborhood. They come also, not, not quite with the same frequency. We don't get 30... A day, we get 30 a year, maybe. Um, but there was a few emails going around recently. Uh, people were like, people are complaining on the email, the local kind of neighborhood email, that people are knocking on the door, like, after seven. Who do these th- people think they are? They're knocking on the doors? Where's their respect? Don't they know that maybe there's kids sleeping? Okay, maybe there's a good point, you know? But we're very quick to judge others' need. And... And we give it, we could give it potentially like a kind of spiritual spin to it, you know. These people don't have respect for us. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's improper to knock on someone's door after seven. I don't know, is that a rule? Maybe that is a rule. Um, you know, but what's our job? Our job is when someone else is in need, it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to take care of them, to help them as much as we can, to the best of our abilities. And we can say, number one, oh, judge them and say, oh, this person does not quite understand. You know what happens when you judge someone else? You yourself get judged with the same lens. Right? The one thing we have to be very careful is to not judge others, because if we judge others, God judges us. You have to be so sure in your upstanding, your moral, behavioral upstanding, to be able to judge someone else. Because you know why? You, get some, you judge someone else, then the Almighty says, ah, so you're able to scrutinize others. So you're now open for scrutiny yourself. And maybe if you're the most righteous person, you could withstand that. But we know. We know ourselves, and we know we have character flaws, and we have behavioral flaws, and we have things about our life and, 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 and our activities that we're maybe not so proud of. And we open ourselves now for scrutiny as well. Isn't that where judge not lest you be judged comes from? That. And that is Hebrew script. That's not New Testament. Well, I don't know. If, I don't know if that that particular verse is where that's from, but that idea is is there's many sources for that idea. Always judging favorably, don't judge others until you're in his place. That's a Mishnah. Um, but yes, and and even we find the idea that we cannot say someone else 
uh, has a need, let God take care of them. Right? When, when you yourself have a need, maybe you could have that kind of pious perspective in it. When someone else has a need, it's your responsibility. Like you said, we partner with God, and we can't say, oh, we're going to leave all the dirt. So that's, ironically, I think, an interesting way to kind of look at this. I mean, there, there is a time and a place for an attitude of you know, ignoring the idea of God for, uh, temporarily. And then we find, in Jewish sources, this following idea. We find a fellow by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod is the local dictator in Abraham's times. <coughs> and the Talmud describes him in very interesting terms. It says, Yodeya et ribono kaven limrodbo. He knew his master and intended to rebel against him. It means this guy, if you were to ask him, and he would, to be honest with you, does he accept the existence of God? He would say, yes. I accept it, and I'm spiteful. I'm spitefully rejecting it. And we find the idea of the Tower of Babel, for example. You know, the people that had this awareness, and yet they resisted it or, 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 or rejected it to such a degree that even though they knew it was true, they still wanted to go and counter that. And we find, I think, um, Rabbi Tiva. You know, Rabbi Tiva is someone... I don't know if we'll have an opportunity to talk to him. I think we're scheduled to talk to, about him next week. We'll see what happens about that. But Rabbi Kiva is someone who begins his life as an ignoramus. And he has this transformation in his life, and he becomes the greatest Torah scholar of his generation. And he tells us, in the Talmud, Talmud tells him, in the book of Sachem, I think 49b, that he told his students, he says, before I became interested in, in, in delving into Jewish scholarship, whenever I saw a Tamachachim, whenever I saw a Torah scholar, I wanted to bite him like a donkey. <laughs> so what do they say to him? Okay, the magic teacher tells you that, right? So they say to him, why, why a donkey? Why not like a dog? You, know, you, you want to bite him like a dog, not like a donkey? He says, yes. A dog bites but doesn't break bones. Donkey bites and breaks bones. And we see someone who had you know, very interesting. We see someone who we know, we know now the end of the story, right? Rabbi Kiva is one of the great heroes in all of Jewish history. And yet we see at that one point in, in his life, he had such a spiteful uh, um, attitude towards, towards Torah and Torah scholars that it kind of mirrors what Nimrod was. It means it's not, he knew there was something there, and that's why he rejected it. He kind of had a backlash effect towards towards God, and, 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 and you would assume, uh, we don't, that's not what it says, but certainly towards, towards Torah scholars. And I have a, a modern example, a third example, which I, I thought of uh, today. Uh, when I was in Israel, so um, I spent many years in yeshiva, and various different yeshivas. One yeshiva I spent was a yeshiva called, a place called Esha Torah. So Esha Torah is interesting because it's kind of a, they have multiple tracks. They have uh, students, like uh, college students, grad students, post-college students who have never, who don't read Hebrew, who have never studied anything. And then they have very advanced scholars who have spent decades learning Torah. And they kind of find ways to have intersections of the two. It's a very interesting uh, you know, kind of uh, phenomenon, very, very uh, fascinating what happens when you have this kind of clash. Not, not clash, but uh, amicable clash. Either way, there was a student who came. Uh, he came on a three-week trip. He had just... Um, passed the bar in Ohio, and he came to Israel on a three-week trip. They gave him a free trip, and they said it's a learning plus exploring trip. Great. He was interested. 
he came on board. He came for three weeks, and that was in 2008, and he's still there. Yeah, he's still there now. Uh, he, you know, I guess he overstayed his visa or whatever. Um, but he. At the University of Florida in the chemistry department here came when I came, and they're still there today. Yeah. So, uh, so, it, so he came through a trip, and he, he was just he loved it. He loved studying Torah, and he had this zest for Torah study that like insatiable. And uh, and he's still there. He's still. I got an email from him uh, a couple of months ago. He said, "Okay, in my regimen of Torah study, I have the nine to one." And then there's the break from one to three, and then three to seven. Straight Torah study. But, you know, all I have to do between one and three is uh, is eat lunch, right? And he says, me and a group of my friends, we want to start a special study session during the break. <laughs> and I want to incentivize these other, these other colleagues of, his, of mine. I want to incentivize them. I want to give them like a little short stipend for that one to three period. And he wants to know if I can help. I said, sure, I'm, I'm going to give you, I'll give you 50 bucks a month. You, I gave, paid, sent them the money. I love it, love these ideas. And he said, come back, come back for more. And then I remembered something this guy told me. He said the first, he told me this, the first time he ever ate a cheeseburger in his life was on Yom Kippur. That's what he told me. You do it, you might as well really do it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, and, and, and that stuck with me. Like, this is someone who has such potential for really being a tremendously impactful Jewish leader. Yet he grew up, whatever, his parents got divorced, and they, they probably sent him, they forced him to go to Sunday school, and he wasn't interested, and he forced him to go to mitzvah, and, and once he got out, you know, he, he wasn't interested, and he went on to high school and college and whatever. And then someone said, oh, it's Yom Kippur. And he's like, and he had some sort of resistance to it that made him want it, like a spiteful resistance. And he said, mm, Yom Kippur, I'm going to have my first trip. Mm. You know, and that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would someone do that? Only if there's something within them that's just driving them and propelling them and forcing them to rebel. And that essentially, I think, is a sign of great potential. You see someone like Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva became the most transformative teacher of his time. And he, yet, before he started studying Torah, he had such animosity. How is that possible? You would think that someone who was maybe more accepting of the Torah scholars would be someone who himself would likely follow that path. And maybe that's true to a certain extent. But when someone is so uh, uh, um, categorically opposed and has a certain sense of animosity, of spitefulness, that I think reveals that there's some there there is something there that if it's exposed or under correct conditions can flourish beyond beyond belief beyond description. And I think there's a certain element of atheism that is a response to a tremendous drive to God. You know, as humans, we have we have our souls, right? Well, what is a soul? A soul is the thing that's most comparable to God. It's not a piece of God, like a lot of people think, because that's a, you know, the semantics are important here. But it's it's the element of spirituality that's most similar to God, and most dissimilar to our body. And it's we don't feel it, and this is why you know this one element of not feeling our soul changes our life dramatically. But it is driven; it's it's yearning for a connection with God. And when someone has a very powerful soul, 
very strong magnet, so to speak, then the body kind of overcorrects. There's an overcorrection where the body's going to have an equally uh, uh, strong and potent resistance to God, and that will manifest in such a way. So we think of, 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 of that as, as sort of like, a, like, a, like an overcorrection to a very powerful soul. So if you see someone who has this kind of agenda, so to speak, this uh, atheistic agenda, and it becomes like a, a rallying cry, which is ironic because there really ought not be a rallying cry of atheism, yet it exists, right? You know, other people say, ah, I'm not interested, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not getting theological. It doesn't interest me. All I want to do is live my life and don't ask me. Like, there's th- those people. And then the people that make it, they make it their rallying cry, which is bizarre because if they're right, there ought not be no rallying cry. It's like, who, you know, it doesn't, doesn't look good on a billboard to say nothing, Right? I believe in the non-existence of something. Like, <laughs> you, don't see, you don't see that. You don't see them say, I don't believe in the UFOs, right? And picketing about it. Why would people make that a rallying cry? The answer is because they're being motivated. They're being motivated to resist that that they're essentially being drawn to as well uh, with another element of, of, of their, uh, you know, their physiology, of their existence. Uh, so, okay, go ahead. It's, it's, it's a, a creative defense to a fear of something that's there. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's hard to be afraid of something that's not there, but as soon as you sense something, maybe you set up a fear rather than exploration. Yeah, well, I, I think fear is going to be the one that's going to be most, most common. But I think there is this idea of someone who is so drawn to God that they have to be equally distanced right. and make it a rallying cry. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Jewish history. Okay, So we know Jewish history, we see a lot of idolatry. Now, idolatry is not quite the same as atheism, uh, but it raises another similar question. It's, 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 a, it's a worldview that rejects the Jewish God, right? The, the, uh, the true God. Now, you know, we. The question is why? Like, what, what, why are people? What's motivating people to adopt an ideology, a theology that really, when you think about it on its on the face, is, is really ludicrous, right? It, it doesn't make sense. Like it was popular in ancient times to go bow down to idols. Like that was very popular. We underestimate how popular that was. That was everywhere. You, know, you still have pockets of that today, but you know. If we discount the theory that people were just savages and just Neanderthals and less sophisticated, right? We have very intelligent, very sophisticated people, and yet they adopt that worldview. And the Talmud asks this question: Why, why were the Jews, especially the Jews at that time, were very developed, very intellectually motivated, hundred uh, percent rates of literacy that was common? Uh, you know, that was common in, in most Jewish generations. Why would there be such mass adoption of idolatry? Uh, and the Talmud says something very bizarre. I'll read to you the Talmud. This is from Sanhedrin. The Jews knew that there was no substance in the idolatry. They knew that. And they only served it to permit themselves sexual immorality. What it says. And what does that mean? What it means is, is that 
the Jews, what they really wanted was promiscuous permissiveness. That's what they wanted. It's just that the path that they used to get there was with idolatry. Now, obviously, that raises questions. So, you know, go ahead. Can you ask the same question about why do some intelligent people turn to drugs? Or, you know, I mean, why would anyone want... I mean, isn't it basically the same mindset? Uh, You know, there's just a rejection of the, you know, being accountable to God or accountable and responsible and instead being accountable just to themselves. Well, I think it's similar, but it's dissimilar. It's dissimilar because... Someone who is drawn to drugs, there's the you know the euphoria or the ecstasy, uh, or and the chem the chemist you know the chemistry really isn't sexual promiscuity the same. Yes, but 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 the path that people use is not necessarily one of ideology, right? Maybe I I, I we could argue about this. I know maybe maybe there there are people that ideologically believe in marijuana, right? But that's not what we're talking about, right? Um, you know, people are not necessarily taking an ideological path. Towards uh, towards whatever immorality that they're seeking. Well, I'm not trying to say that drugs is immoral. I'm not trying to take a stance on that. Um, but Why can't the, but the, but the idol, idea is bizarre, right? Go ahead. The idols. I mean, pe- people don't really believe in a, pe- a rock that that's God, you know. But they can use it as a representative. They need something tangible to see that they they know. That well, there was some of that as well, but there was some. Just blatant pagification of of rocks, you know. the The Romans, the Romans, we think of them as very modern, right? Deo Cassius writes that the Romans had more than thirty thousand gods. Yes, I'm sure some of them were kind of, you know, uh, supernatural or, or, or uh, you know, or, or transcendental entities that were manifest in physical forms. But a lot of them were just. Stuff that people had hanging around their house, you know, it was just—it's bizarre. It's a very bizarre kind of worldview that people had. And the Talmud saying that the Jews who would, who, you know, various to varying degrees, uh, you know, o- over history, uh, that they had lapses of their belief in God and adoption of idolatry. That was essentially motivated not by the ideological. Uh, um, uh, tantalizations of, of of the idols, rather for the permissive path that the idols brought to them. And to me, this is a bizarre idea because you want to sin, you want to do idolatry, you want to do promiscuity, you want to have uh, you you know you want to have sexual morality. Go for it. Why does that? Why why does it? Why must it be predicated on changing you know this foundational belief in God that it has been the hallmark of the Jewish people. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You want, the, you want the sexuality, okay, just go for it. Just, you know, do that. It's a rationalization for them, though. Exactly. And to me, this is the core insight, that people felt the need that to reconcile their ideological or philosophical mindset with their life, with their behavior, with their activities, with, you know, with what they did. To them... There was a contradiction. If you had God, you had Torah, yet you did everything against the Torah, then you're, you're, you're li- you can't live like that. You have to find some way to have an alternative ideology, and that allows, that opens the door for whatever you really want to do. But this is a subtle point. And the point is, is that, that 
did the Jews know that this was really what was motivating them? I mean, are we so aware of what really drives us at our core? Or perhaps we kind of, you know, are, are, are motive or, or, or only recognize, only conscious of our surface inclinations. When we're younger, we don't necessarily recognize ourselves and our, our strengths and our weaknesses. But I think as you get older, we clearly do. Because life gives you experience and it becomes a, a reflecting tool. And you do get it clear. And I think that, 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 that idea is of post-facto, you might, you might, you know, you have the, the ability to, you know, hindsight, the gift of hindsight to kind of reflect. Well, sometimes but sometimes things simply do not work out, and we have to have them. And then once we have whatever it is we think we just have to have, pretty much a letdown. Okay, but I'll, I'll, let me try to paint this in a different in a different way. Let's assume, you know, we're here in a, a court. There's a trial. Someone's being tried for a capital punishment. Uh, and we have the prosecutor, we have the defense attorneys. And they're each arguing, you know, vehemently and vociferously for their side. And they're each presenting ostensible logic and evidence to prove their claim. If you ask them, do they believe in what they're saying? It's possible for them to both say yes. Are you being motivated by the truth? Yeah, this is the truth. You know, I'll give you another example. Let's say we didn't look at the attorneys, but we looked at the families of the victim and the families of the accused. What are they saying? What are they arguing? What's their perspective? Are they being motivated by truth? Or perhaps does their love of their, you know, of, of their kin, does that cloud their judgment? Is it possible for someone to argue to an end that they just, that's what they want the end to be, and therefore they're not even aware that they're not approaching the logic fairly? I agree that's not their job. I agree that's not their job. True. Means you're saying, well, the defense, you know, they have fiduciary responsibility. I agree. But there is this idea of, of, doing things, of arguing things, of taking stances on issues and being motivated by something entirely different than the issue itself. And that's what the Talmud is describing. The Talmud is describing people that are, have a bias. Their bias is that what they want is in opposition with what God wants. If you have that underlying bias, and then you approach the question of theology, and you have the question, okay, we have the idols, and this mass adoption of the idols. Is it possible that the whole world is crazy? That's a good argument a lot of people make, right? But the answer is yes, it is possible the whole world is crazy. And we see that now. A lot of people believe things. I'm saying not, not now, I'm saying now for hindsight. It's not possible that... that not the whole world, but, but the majority of the world. You know, the fact that in, in the 50s, if you were to interview the, 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 the majority of scientists and you were to ask them to date the Earth or date, date the universe, the vast majority of them would say that uh, the, the world's eternal, been around forever. And then 1965, we have, we, you know, we're able to detect the echoes of the Big Bang, right? And we, you know, we see an expanding universe and then everyone agrees that 
the world had a beginning. The first verse of Genesis has been verified by science. Right? It's possible for science scientists, even the scientists, people that are driven and are paid and are the best at trying to find the truth, can be wrong. It's possible. I'm not saying it's always going to be like that. But if you have idols, if you have a whole country that adopts, like, saying I don't, I, I don't want to get politically, you know, in political hot water. But I have a friend who went to, I don't know, a second, who went to uh, Southeast Asia. And they went to a little Buddhist temple. And, I, and he showed me pictures. I said, don't go to a Buddhist temple. That's a house of idolatry. But he sent me pictures anyhow. He showed me like what he was doing there. And there was this crazy guy like screaming to a little Buddha figurine. And there's millions of people that believe in that. And you know what? They're wrong. And they may not be bad people. They may not be, you know, uh, not un- unintelligent. But they are completely insane with regards to believing that some sort of figure or some sort of Buddha or something like that has power that controls the world, right? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, I'm not blaming them, maybe they have traditions or whatever, and we see in our own history people believe something, things that were similar, but that is insane. And the fact that a lot of people believe it doesn't make it less insane. Was it uncontrollable bias? No, no, I don't say uncontrollable. What was it? What was it? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, well, it's latent bias, it's underlying bias. Underlying. Okay, did Adam have that? I think everyone has it. I think everyone has it, and that's why people come to conclusions that may be very convenient for them. If everyone has it, then it's part of our wiring. Oh, I agree. I agree. And sometimes we neglect, and I just was laughing with Leslie. I mean, for myself, it could be, there's times I've had ignorance make a play in decisions I've made. Just to give you a quick example... I had, I love art, and I had purchased several pieces, a mask, um, a piece of art. I, I knew it was a Buddhist, but it was beautifully carved. It was gorgeous, and it was in my home. Never did I give a thought about it until my son's Israeli friend walked into he my smashed home. It. He's not religious <laughs> at all. He walks in my home, looks at my son, and says, so your mother's an idol worshiper. <laughs> <laughs> I got rid of them. I mean, yes, I did. But I never gave a thought that I actually had idols in my home. Oh, I'll give you guys another example. It's just, it, it, just to prove the point that everyone has it. Like, you know, so a lot of people are, are lazy, right? Lazy people. That's one of the most, I guess, disrupting qualities that a human could have. Because it really inhibits everything, right? Um and then you have, okay, you're laying down in bed, you're almost sleeping, and you realize you forgot to take your medication today, your iron supplements, right? <laughs> and then you're like, nah, you miss a day, no big deal, right? right? That's a good argument. Miss a day is no big deal. But what really is happening is you're lazy. That's what's really happening. And you're tired. You don't want to get up. And then you make an argument. You'll say, wait a minute, let's Google it. Is missing a day a big deal? <laughs> Look, it's not a big deal. And you, and you know what? But that's not really where the argument is, is, is being generated. You know, it's, it's really a product of your laziness. That's my point. Everyone has it. Every negative character that we rationalize to try to cover up and to, you know, to, to, make, to, make, to force us or to, uh, to uh, obviate the need to directly encounter our negative qualities is an example of our biases. Now, this is not a comfortable thing to hear about. No one likes to hear that... You know, that decisions that they made or you know, things that they did 
were motivated by anything other than the truth. You know, we like to think of ourselves as we're intelligent. We have the capacity to, you know, to uh, to uh, to have reason and to approach things that way. Uh, and when we're told that we really have complexity within ourselves that is contributing to our decision, that's that, you know that's disturbing. But that's what the Talmud is saying that 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 caused the people of yesteryear of, of antiquity to do idolatry was not was not motivated by necess- necessarily by ideology. You see these examples, you know, um, where uh, you know someone some some kid has problems with their parents, right? You know, I I've, I met someone recently. Um, so he he ha- he's having issue with his parents. He's a teenager, right? You can't blame him, right? But suddenly he's like the biggest philosopher in the world, you know, and he's quoting like Nietzsche and whatever and Kant, and like he has it all figured out. And his parents are a bunch of you know of, of doofuses, right? And you know, and, and what what what's really happening is that he's trying to rebel against his parents and to cause them a little pain, you know. And whatever whatever it takes, that you know, that's what we'll, that's what we'll be using. Now, as Jews, we're encouraged to tr- seek the truth. And what essentially that means is that we're encouraged to overcome and neutralize our biases. Right? Uh, we're encouraged to have self-reflection. Um, uh, like someone mentioned earlier, you know, we, we look at the, the story of Eliezer and Abraham. Abraham has a slave, his name is Eliezer, and he gives him a very important mission. He makes him swear, I want you to swear to me that you'll take Isaac and marry him off to someone from my family out east and not take a, 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 a woman from Canaan to marry him. And then he asks this question, and he says, what do I do if I go to your family and I meet the girl and I say, why don't you come marry Isaac? And she says, I'm not interested. What do I do then? And Abram tells him, if that happens, you're absolved from your commitment. You're absolved. Fine. He's, so he goes there, and he, he, he takes his camels, and he meets Rebecca, of course, and she gives him the water, and she says, now I'm going to give you the water, I'm going to give the, the, animal, the, the camels the water, and he meets Laban, who comes there, and everyone, the whole story, and then he sits down to eat, and says, stop, I'm not eating. What I want to do now is I'll tell you the whole story. I want to first take care of business, and then we'll, then we'll dine together. She tells him the whole story that Abraham told him, I make you swear not to go, not, not to take a, a, a woman from Canaan, go to my family at East, the whole story. And then I said to him, what if, what if the woman doesn't want to come? And he tells me, oh, don't want to come, you're himself me a sinner, came here, I met Rebecca, the whole story, repeats the whole story. If you look in a Torah scroll, when uh, you compare these two passages, which are one chapter after another, you compare them, you'll notice that it's almost verbatim, but there's some letters that are changed. The word for ulai, ulai means perhaps. Ulai means perhaps, right? Elias says, ulai, perhaps the woman won't want to come with me. What do I do then? So anyone says you're absolved, don't worry about it. You're absolved. You're absolved. One place it's spelled with the vowel in the form of the letter. Aleph Vav Lamed Yud with Ulai. And one of them is spelled with the vowel in the form of Nikudot, which, which is Aleph Lamed Yud, which can also be read as Eli to me. To me. And Rashi tells you at the bottom, you notice that, right? You picked up that subtlety. I don't know if it come, 
it goes over like in the Septuagint or the King James Version edition of the Bible, right? This is why you read the Torah in the original Hebrew, you see things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Or maybe you won't because you just read it too fast, or maybe you can't read Hebrew, whatever. But either way, Rashi points out and says, wait a minute. Rashi's actually according to the Talmud. If you notice that there is a difference between the way it's spelled, there it's spelled with the full word, and here it's spelled without the full word, right? And that's common in the Torah. Sometimes letter, sometimes the vowels are in the form of letters and sometimes in the form of nikudot that don't show up in the Torah scroll. Why would the Torah choose to write it with the letter and without the letter, right? With the letter during when it actually happened. And then afterwards, uh, when he's recounting it, he... Uh, he uh, it's you know he says the same thing. I said perhaps the woman right, and then it's spelled without. Rashi says like this: This is what Eliezer was saying. Eliezer had a daughter. Eliezer himself, a slave, had a daughter, but she was from Canaan. And Abraham and Eliezer said, "There's no better son-in-law for me than Isaac. And my daughter, she's fantastic. She's beautiful. She's talented. She's pious. Everything, the whole package." And Isaac's getting old. He's getting ready. He's an eligible bachelor, right? The most eligible bachelor in town. And I'm the confidant. I'm the, fir- the right-hand man of Abraham. And his head's spinning. He's like, there's no better person to marry off my own daughter to than Isaac. And he asks Abraham, what do I do if I go there? And I ask the girl. And I say to her, what if I say, give the whole pitch, and she doesn't want to come back. What do I do then? He says, but you're absolved from my sin. And later on, he gets to, he get, you know, he gets, he gets east and he's retelling the whole story. And then the Torah spells it, instead of Uli, perhaps spelled Eli, to me. When Eliezer repeats his story, he realizes that when I asked Abraham back in Israel, I asked him, what do I do? Perhaps the girl won't want to come back with me. What I really was thinking, Eli, to me, maybe I'll be able to have, to, to have Isaac for myself. This, I think, is another example of someone who's doing things and is totally unaware at the time, unaware of what's really motivating him to do that. Ostensibly, if you asked Eliezer at the time, you ask him, why are you asking Abraham what to do in the off chance that the girl doesn't want to come with you. He would say, well, I'm just trying to figure out what the options are, right? He would have no idea that what's really motivating him deep down to ask that question is the hopes, clinging to the hopes that he'll go there and he'll ask the girl and she'll say no and finally he'll be allowed to have Isaac for himself. And then later on, he has the gift of hindsight and he's, and he's being honest with himself and he retells the whole story. And as an outsider... He's, to this episode, he's able to say, ah, when I was asking Uli, what do I do, perhaps the woman won't talk, what I was really, was really motivating me was Eli to me. And maybe I'll have Isaac for myself. And I think this is an example of, of the problem that we face as humans. I guess if we're all, we're all in this together, then you know, there's a lesson here. And that is that we don't necessarily know, or maybe we don't know, but we're not aware we're not mindful at the time of our activity, whatever it may be, or of a decision that we, that we do, or even a question that we ask in the form of, in, in, you know, in, in, this, in the story of, of Eliezer. We don't know necessarily what's really driving our decision. I don't know. It sounds like he had an ulterior motive from the beginning. 
Well, yes, maybe he he did, he did, but he didn't know that he did till later. And and to me, this is interesting. And I think this is the same point. We have the Jews saying, "We're adopting idolatry in mass." And the Talmud says, "What was really motivating them? It wasn't the idol. It wasn't like the you know they were so taken by the ideological truth that was the infallibility of these idols. Of course not. That's not what it was about." What really was motivating them was the fact that they wanted permissiveness. And in their unconscious, they connected to that, so there's no way to have that if you have God. Okay, well, how can you? Well, what are the alternatives? And if you see uh, the masses of the time and all the great intellectuals of the time saying that there is some credence to the idolatry, and then you say, oh, well, let's examine it. And you're examining it, but you're not really being truthful because you're being motivated by something else. You'll find some way to make that true. Right? Life will find a way, right? <laughs> if you have a desired outcome, you'll find a way. If you are forced to do something, right? if your life depends on something, if like, your life's depending on something, would you be able to do it? Would you be able to write a novel in 30 days, uh, theoretically? You would, right, if you left him in there. You'd find a way to do it, right? <laughs> no one would want to read it. <laughs> That's not your charge. You right? The, the, the capability, the human capabilities, the human ingenuity, if you're compelled to do something, if you're forced, you'll, you'll find a way, right? Life will find a way. And if you know that you'll only be happy, if you feel you'll only be happy if you have permissiveness, You'll find a way to make it okay to, to, to remove the contradiction. <clears throat> so do we know the behavior changed at that point? Their sexual behavior with when idolatry was adopted? Well, we know, number one, that a lot of the, <laughs> ide- the, the, the pagan practices involved orgies and, and the like. Um, but you know, I think even if we don't know that, right? if you live a permissive life, if you have a nihilistic lifestyle, there's no consequences to your actions. How would you behave? You behave differently, right? You can rationalize anything. Well, you don't need to rationalize everything. If if, if that's your governing but, perspective, but it, you don't need. You did the rationalizing already once you pagan, accepted that. Yeah, but in paganism, it's not just sexual problems. Not necessarily. I mean, they, true. They made um, the Greeks made um, uh, rationalized uh, exposing babies to die if they weren't handsome. Uh, that was their practice. I mean, you don't have to go to the Greeks. We have the we have uh, Nazi Germany. Well, um, <coughs> and, I, and I and I think by the way. And I'm, I'm going to make this point, uh, I think, a little bit later. I'll be able to just jump in now. Maybe it's controversial, but I think it's for sure it's true. I'm reading a book now, a book, another, a book on the Holocaust called Black Earth. Um, Black Earth. Um, it's the Holocaust <laughs> as a, a, a lesson. I don't know what the tagline. <laughs> and he makes the point in the introduction, which, by the way, when I say in the introduction, it's probably because I just only have only a few chapters in. Like, Why am I always pointing for the introduction, right? Like, how do I always introduce, always post from like the first few pages? Sorry about that. Uh, he makes the point a few uh, the few pages in is that is that the governing worldview, the Weltanschauung, Hitler's Weltanschauung, was, I guess, especially in in view of the time, it was motivated by the idea of evolution. And that is, we're not humans aren't different; we're just advanced animals. And the idea of survival of the fittest. 
and the idea that the fit, you know, stamp out the less fit, that was the governing principle of his ideology. How do you get it? Does it say you get it? Exactly. You know, so if so if someone is born uh, with some sort of deformity, deformity or whatever, then, then the moral thing to do in that worldview is to just euthanize them. Well, there were intellectuals in the Nazi movement. I mean, uh, all of them were. <laughs> I know. Well, they, they, if you in, 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 the, in the Nuremberg trials, they had they they did they did IQ tests. All the all the head Nazis, they were all very very intelligent. Hitler was intelligent. Goebbels, who didn't make the Nuremberg, but Goebbels was certainly an intellectual. All of them. Mengele certainly was an intellectual. And did the intellectual, um, did that interfere with their behavior? Motivated exactly. It means you could you could use your intellectual acumen for whatever atrocities you want. You know, provided that that's what you know. That's if you know if, if that's your perspective, like that 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 that, that could go really really awry. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you could make it sound very rational. It, it's rational to say you, you shoot the poor as opposed to help the poor. I mean, it would lower crime. I mean, you know. Killing everybody on welfare, in theory, is intellectually defensible. And beneficial for the state. Yes. So, I mean, but is that how we work? No. That's of course not, right? God says not to do that. But, you know, the point is you can certainly rationalize uh, ways of doing this. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. Now, in, in uh, okay, so, so how does this bring us to atheism? Um, if bias, the bias of permissiveness begot idolatry is there any bias that we would have perhaps or our bodies would have uh, in opposition to Torah what does the Torah say Torah says no cheeseburgers right no cheeseburgers and then it gives a whole long list of stuff that are no no no's are we motivated just from our body's perspective to embrace that or to reject that to reject that. Is it possible that we have, all of us, we have an inborn resistance to Torah? It's not possible. It's, it's likely. In fact, the Midrash tells us, and I have a quote here, the Midrash I wrote it down. Uh, the, the, the Midrash tells us that When Moshe was writing down the Torah, so the Almighty is dictating to Moshe, and the very first chapter it says, let us make man. Now what does that imply? Huh? Plurality of, of, right? That's that's what it implies. So Moshe stops writing and is like, wait a minute. Now you're opening the door for people to reject the idea of one God. So the says, write it and give them the opportunity to reject. The Almighty wants us to have resistance in our path toward greatness. Obviously, if there was no resistance, if all of us, if, if, if our bodies and our souls were in unison to drive towards spirituality, would, spiritual, would spiritual greatness be any great achievement? Would having great character would that be something admirable 
if you were motivated to have good character, you didn't have this conflict. So we have a conflict, and our body and our soul are in opposition with, they don't agree in what our agenda should be. If you were, if you were to just for one second feel like your soul feels, you, you would, I don't know if you would go nuts, but you would feel a drive to Torah and God beyond anything, any drive you've ever had in your life. That's what you would feel. Now, the Almighty, by design, chose to make our body be in charge, our body, our, our, our physical existence, to be in charge of what we feel, what we're driven to. Our mind is the tool to unlock it. Our mind is the tool to kind of propel us. But our body is driven towards everything the Torah is telling us to avoid. So that's the opposition. Now, if someone says, oh, here's Torah, right? If you, we, we had a lot of these, these issues with, with college students, right? I remember I was sitting once with a college student, and he's like, brilliant uh, philosopher, of course. And we're talking about theology, we're discussing whatever. And then we talked about a little bit about Torah. What are the what's the evidence? You know, we did five. I did you know I don't know if we did five here. We did three or four of them. Some of the examining some of the evidence to the divinity of the Torah. And he's like, "What about mushrooms? What, what about mushrooms?" He's like, "Maybe all the Jews, the millions of Jews, were all in shrooms, and they all hallucinated everything that they saw." At that point, I'm like, "There's no point in." regressing with this discussion. Like, we cannot, we cannot get anywhere because he's just spitballing anything. Why? Doesn't it matter? Like, shouldn't we be motivated by truth? If, if, if it's truth, let's accept it as a truth. You want to behave how you want to behave, so what? I'm not forcing you to start, you know, to stop driving on Shabbos and eat only kosher and... That's not what I'm forcing. We're just having a discussion as intellectual humans to try to find truth. But that's not what really was happening. What really was happening is, driven by their biases, right? It, it doesn't matter what is more reasonable, more logical, if you're trying to defend your turf. To him, I'm not judging him, but his, his life was not willing to accept the idea of the Torah being true. He wasn't there. I wasn't there yet, or whatever, whatever it is. So that, so then he, I'm cornering him, right? And what happens when you corner, you corner someone? They they have to break out. Well, what if the breaking out? There's no conventional ways to break out, right? There's no back door, right? There's no reasonable argument you can make. You start making unreasonable arguments. Yeah, and we see this. We we've all had arguments with people. Sometimes we were we're the ones that are wrong, and yet we persist in arguing. That happens, you know. But then we see other times where you pull out your hair, you argue with someone, right? like you, there's no one to talk to, and the reason is because you're not arguing on the same level, you're not the same wavelength, right? If you're pursuing truth and they're just trying to find justification for their bias, you won't get anywhere. You can't you can't argue, but the merits. And that's how it's possible to have the world, you know, we, you know, Janet says, is it possible everyone's wrong? Well, no, provided that everyone's trying to find truth. If you're truly trying to find truth, you'll get there. But if you allow your, your biases to inhibit your pursuit of truth, 
then that will direct you. It means these biases themselves can employ your intellectual faculties to try to find perverted, uh, per- 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 pervertedness. Right? Pervertedness in the form of perverted truth. It's not, it's not true. You know, the highly paid lawyer that we, that we talked about earlier, what is their job? Their job is the outcome is established, get there. Find some way to get there. If that's your job, you're being paid not to find the truth. You're being paid to find that destination in the most plausible way that the jury will agree to. That's your job. If we are encountering, if we are engaging with the most important decisions in our life, with the same bias guiding us, if the end has to be like that, let's find a way to make that, that you know, then we'll get there and we'll have the rubber stamp of our intelligence. Our mind, our mind, our mind is, you know, the human mind, the capacity of a brain, right? And then we'll have justification for what we wanted. Now, I'll give you another example here. And this is kind of shows you the other perspective of it. Because what about the people that are motivated by religion? Well, those people also have a bias, right? Huh? It means you can have a bias that happens to be correct. It's possible that the guy who's correct, who's more comfortable with religion, you know, is, is someone who would also be driven by a bias. You know? So there was a question in the 50s. Are you allowed to use a refrigerator on Shabbos? And what's the problem? The problem is, is that with regards to electricity, we can't turn on electricity in Shabbos, right? There's a debate as to why. But all the halakhic authorities agree, either because it's building, you're building a circuit, or perhaps it's igniting a fire, or it's even those that uh, make the argument that it's nola, which is creating something new on Shabbos. Either way, it's prohibited. Now, the question is, how does a refrigerator work? So you open the door, and now the temperature of the refrigerator goes up. So what does that do? That turns on. That turns on the cooling. It kindles the fire. Yeah. So. Actually, it just turns on a light. Oh well, so the lights for sure is a problem, right? The so refrigerator is running the whole time, unless you unplug it from the wall. Yeah, but so, but but the refrigerator is it always pressure. cooling? There's a it's thermostat. Off and yeah. on, off and on, off and on the whole time. Well, so so okay, fine. So then we're good, right? <laughs> so it's at regular so intervals. Well, it's 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 at all at regular intervals. Every five minutes it's on, right? Yeah, either, either unplug it, I mean, for twenty seconds, whatever. Okay, so then then we're good. But there was a whole question in the fifties as to whether or not uh, you were allowed to use it. Because the problem is, if my opening the door is going to turn on the mechanism, the cooling mechanism, then it's no different than turning on a light. I'm I'm tr- I'm, I'm engaging electricity. If it's random, then we're good. Then it's not. It's, my opening the door is not doing anything. That's how you rationalize the elevators. I've heard they have in Israel. Oh, they have Shabbos elevators. Shabbos, Shabbos elevators. Stop. No, so or they, they stop at regular intervals. So that means you, you don't push a button. It just goes up every floor. Right. They stop. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's right. That's right. Um, so isn't the health of a person more important? Or just get the iceboxes and fill them with ice cubes? Well, now I don't know anyone that... Oh, well, I'll tell you guys something cool. When I was in yeshiva in Israel, so I was in a few yeshivas, one of them had these really very pious and very, like, dedicated and committed, you know, uh, students. 
I remember on Shabbos, you'd see some guy put his ear to the refrigerator like this. And they wouldn't open the refrigerator until they hear the, like, the little vroom of the engine, and now we can open it, because I know for sure. Right? So they have those people. <laughs> and that's true in the light bulb. Oh, for sure the light bulb's unscrewed. Yeah, yeah. There were those people like that. But most people open up the refrigerator indiscriminately. But in the 50s, there was a whole debate as to whether or not you open the refrigerator. And one of the commentators pointed out that uh, one of the halachic authorities said, everyone is sure that you're allowed to do it. The question is just how you get there. And what he was saying is that there's this religious bias as well. You could say, I'll prove from the Torah X. You know, and thus you're using the Torah not to accept God's truth, but rather to employ it to get to where you want to get to. And that can be done. And we have people today say, it's not, it's not modern to say certain things that the Torah says. It's not socially progressive to say things the Torah says. So you know what the problem is? The problem is the Torah, the Torah, the Torah has to change, right? We can't change. No. <laughs> Torah has to change. But how, how do you can't change the Torah? How do you do that? You know what we do? We have something we want. We want the Torah to be okay with certain things that it's not okay with. Because to be making compatible with that you will just We'll find a way to do it. We'll use textual chicanery to try to get there. And we'll get there. Textual, analytical. We'll come up with something. You know why? In the corner, you're forced. You're the caged animal. You'll, you'll get there. No matter, no matter what. Dennis Prager has written on... Because he drives to... In California, he drives to um, Synagogue on Shabbos. And he has written... Everybody and, drives to Synagogue on Shabbos in California. Okay, well, but... Not everybody. Well, not everybody. Just, but, not everybody. But he rationalizes, and of course he's very observant, but he rationalizes very. whether igniting spark plugs when you turn an ignition is really kindling a fire. Now, he had, he concedes that there's people that disagree, but he personally doesn't... That's how he gets to Shabbos to carry out God's will. Today but you he, can. It's one of those deals. Today yeah, you but, can. Well, that, but that's a different argument. <laughs> but he's not, he's getting to the truth that you say it in his way. Right, so I, I think there's three ways to drive on Shabbos. Tell about this three-prong plug and the two-prong plug, oh. the coffee pot on Shabbos. Well, well what do they do? I don't know, we had the bar mitzvah for my kid. I had a conservative oh. rabbi. You know, he said there was something about whether, whether it was grounded or not made a difference whether you could use the some people say, listen, we're not observing Torah. We can drive wherever we want on Shabbos. Uh, the conservatives always say, well, we can make changes, whatever. This is something else. This is like, I want to drive on Shabbos. Okay? How do we get there? Well, let's start arguing with the rabbis who know the most about this. Uh, who unequivocally say that electricity in Shabbos is, is well, not electricity in Shabbos is prohibited, igniting electricity in Shabbos uh, is, uh, is prohibited. So I, I think that's another good example I'll have to add it to my docative example. But yeah, um, that's a human condition, and it can be used for good or used for bad. You know, um, if you're trying, if you're arguing with someone, and, and you're arguing for maybe the correct or the moral side of an argument, but they throw a curveball at you, you'll probably also correct and say, oh, you'll come up with something, right? Force to come up with something. 
The point is, is that whatever is motivating you, so, sometimes you'll have things that are motivating you that are underlined and that go beyond the issue itself and they cause you to achieve a certain, a certain result. Now, I want to I just, I, wanna, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I, I, we have, I, have, I have to end a little early today, but I look at the theory of evolution in two ways, for example, just as an example. There's other examples to this phenomena as well. I look at it as something which is very appealing in one hand, and on the other hand, I look at it as, as exactly this, and I'll explain what I mean. Evolution has, it's a nice idea, very clever, no one's denying that, and it could be the way the Almighty used to create the world. Possible. We don't know. You know why? Because the Torah tells us that the Almighty created the world. That's what we believe. That's what makes sense. We don't know how the Almighty created the world. That was never told in the Torah. Thus, it's possible that he employed this method and, or any other method. Maybe he created it just everything from nothing or he created some sort of material that he formed into other materials. That either one is... Okay. Now, I have read statements before that it does discuss in the, the Mishnah about birds coming from fish, about that there's, there's species evolution only is referenced. But, the, okay, I, I would like to see that Mishnah. I'm not familiar with that Mishnah. But there is a famous Ramban, Nachmanides, who to me, if he says it, it's as good as if it's written in Mishnah. For us, for our, for our sake. And he talks about this... Uh, material, he calls it a hiuli. This material that was what the Yemite created, and then he just used this material to create everything else. So it's like a two-pronged um, or two-layer, two-tiered creation in the form of one thing was created, something from nothing, ex nihilo, and something, and then after that it was just forming that. Fine. If there is a Mishnah, it does it means that's fine. We're fine with that. Provided that we accept the idea that God created it. Now, if you talk to, in the world at large, there's the evolutionists versus the creationists. Evolutionists are only willing to accept evolution provided that is in opposition to creationists. Now, why would that be so? Now, my theory, and um, I think this makes sense, is that evolution is another alternative to God. So idolatry doesn't fly anymore. But evolution, if it's being used as an alternative for God, is a boon for people that want to reject God, that their biases are pushing them away from God. So it's, it's, it's like a carrot that's dangling towards us saying, ah, you want to find a world where God is obviated? I'll create it for you. Now, even though evolution does not do that because evolution doesn't explain how you have inorganic matter turn into organic matter, right? Inanimate matter turning into animate matter. You start from an amoeba, and then you make us, which in itself is a little bit of a stretch, to agree, without God. It's a stretch. Everyone, even the evolutionists who believe in it, they say that this to happen on its own is incredibly unlikely. We don't have to give the superlatives. It's infinitesimally small that have happened. That being, especially in such a short time, 3.5 billion years, in the grand scheme, is not so, not, it's not so long. That being said, um, 
it doesn't so it doesn't answer it doesn't answer the questions, but it's something. And even though there hasn't been, to my knowledge, there hasn't been even a theory that's been presented how inanimate matter start, becomes an amoeba. Once you have the amoeba, you just somehow get to elephants and crocodiles and humans and 8.7 million species. All that happens magically on its own. Let's assume that that's correct. How do you take dust or inanimate matter and turn it into a matter, in, in, into an amoeba? You're like, oh, a simple single-celled organism. It's not so simple. It's not so simple. And then, and if you have a distaste for gore, I saw this picture online and I just, I was they, taken by it. They would be able to recreate it if they could figure so, it out. Wouldn't that be lovely? And then I saw a picture of a, of a uh, if you don't like this, if you, this is a human brain, live human brain. I saw this picture online. I'm like, that's a brain? That's a human yeah, brain. It looks yeah, like a heart. The top of the brain, that's a vein. I'm like, whoa, this is a brain. We have billions of connections and uh, trillions. trillions. And like this all happened on its own from a single cell. Even assuming that's correct. How do you make well, a single cell? No parents theory, if I'm not... Oh, maybe there are some theories. I'm sure there are theories. The point it's is, is that... Of course. There's a thing called the Yuri experiment, which is... Okay, I mean, you know that my... My thing is, is that there's so many chances because the universe is so big that stuff can happen. But the Uri experiment is actually a good try at going from the inanimate to the animate. I'm sure there have been there have been there have been theories, but I, I, I said I'm not familiar. With, oh, well, I'll look look at it, and I have I have a whole talk on evolution. But we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it at greater length. What, but, how do you spell it, Bruce? Why you are you are you are a University of California. Oh, okay. Or so University of Chicago, I'm sorry. That's true, and 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 I think that that, that has to be there because it, we have to find some alternative to God, right? There has to be something because otherwise, if you know, the mind's not going to handcuff us. Alexander O'Parent on the origin of life. Uh, I'm sure there are theories, right? <laughs> Russian, uh, Russian science, of so course. Even if you assume that God used evolution, and we're evolution, fine with that, evolution. Remember. But but you don't think it because there's obviously evidence of evolution, but d- 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 you don't think that we, no, contradicts there's no, the Torah. There's no evidence of new species coming out of old species. We don't have that evidence. We have evidence, but it's not like evidence in in, in any realm of evolution proves the whole thing. Well, we, I understand there's flaws in it. Even Darwin himself acknowledged. Well, Darwin that, himself, Darwin, Darwinian evolution, no one even believes that anymore. Well, okay, but 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 you don't think that that contradicts the Torah. Uh, I am uh, okay. There's nothing contradictory about it. I'm okay with saying, listen, we don't know. It's a process. When you, you have God you have the world, the universe that maybe the, that that apes were the dust that somehow it went from dust to atom as opposed to dust to uh, monkeys to atom. Uh, he could God have omitted such a basic? <laughs> Listen, thing? Well, we're we're analyzing Genesis. It's very hard for okay. us to know. My point is, my point is, is that this is a viable alternative. Now, it's not it's not intellectually viable if we're pursuing truth. But if we need to come with a uh, worldview that obviously need for God, this is today's idolatry. I'm not saying that it's wrong necessarily, but I'm saying it's wrong. If it implies that God doesn't exist, which is a stretch beyond a stretch, I'm okay with evolution being true. I, I'm, if you told me evolution is true, 
I say, yes, of course, I'm fine with that. That doesn't mean anything. It's just the process that the money employed to create the world. But to say that it all happened without God, that's a very, very big stretch. But it's not big enough if you have to get there. If you have to get there, you'll get there. Right? Life will find a way. Okay, guys. So, of course not. Of course not. Of course not. But, and you have to ask yourself the question, why is it presented like that? It's an interesting question. Why? It's presented because that's what it really is. Because it's a flailing attempt. Not, not, for, not for everyone, but for some that's people. The, that's the bridge that I've made in the last two or three years with all the stuff that I learned. That I thought, oh, that's no God. You know, I'm not to the point where that doesn't prove there is no God. It just proves that. And we have an abundance of evidence to the existence of God. So, <laughs> Guys, I look forward to seeing all of you guys next Sunday. Um, well, I'll send out the details. It's going to be fantastic. I'd love to see you guys, and we'll have our class there or some version of it. And thank you all for coming. And I apologize if I was a little bit kind of slower than usual because uh, you didn't notice it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Great. I am happy to hear that. The muggles are already waiting. I'm going to run. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I have to run, guys. I'm sorry. Ima, hi. How are you? Hello? Anyway, you there?